everyone to the fourth webinar series on COVID-19, jointly organized by the Malaysian Society of Infection Control and Infectious Disease, or in short form, my ICID, and Institute of Clinical Research, uh, NIH. I am Dr. Nafariza, and thank you for joining us live from social media. Before I um, introduce the moderator for today's session, um, as usual, we will remind you in regards to first the question and answer. This will be um, typed using the Slido X and we will try to address as many questions as possible. For your CPD points, all frontliners, healthcare professionals and allied health team, remember to collect your CPD points by filling up the online attendance form. In case you miss it, it will be broadcast again after the Q&A question. And please double check your email address before submitting to make sure that you receive um, the CPD points. The slide and notes after the session um, will be made available on all social media websites as well as email newsletter. The video and podcast, if you like to watch the session again, you can go to our clinical updates in COVID-19 YouTube channel or listen to our podcast channel when it is available. So this afternoon, we are indeed honored and privileged to have with us two members in Malaysia bioethics community, Dr. Liu Hongbang, who will be our moderator for today's session, and Dr. Tan Huisiu, who will be sharing with us her experience in bioethics. On behalf of my ICID and ICR NIH, I would like to thank both Dr. Liu and Dr. Tan Huisiu for taking the time to join us this afternoon. Now, I pass the floor to Dr. Liu. Thank you, Dr. Fariza. Thank you for your kind introduction. And good afternoon, everyone. I'm Dr. Liu Hongbang. I'm the moderator for this session. And it gives me great pleasure to introduce uh, Dr. Tan Huisiu. Uh, she is a clinician. Uh, been in our Ministry of Health for the last 16 years. And uh, she also has, uh, you know, she's a pediatrician in practice, but she also holds a master in bioethics from the Harvard University. And currently she's uh, concentrated her effort in establishing clinical ethics support in public hospital, which involved in the clinical ethics consultation and interprofessional ethics education. She had helped to set up the hospital ethics support service called HES and clinical ethics committee in Ampang Hospital, uh, which uh, is uh, operational since uh, July last year. Dr. Tan, is also the co-founder of our Malaysian bioethics community, of which she has led the editorial work for the bioethics and COVID-19 guidance for clinician, which was published in May last year uh, when we had the outbreak uh, of COVID-19. And uh, we have hosted several webinars and published uh, uh, several writings during this period. Uh, Dr. Tan is also a member of our Malaysian research ethics committee. And she has many other interests area of interest, including uh, public health ethics, narrative ethics, and of course, uh, you know, her core business in uh, neonatal, uh, you know, disease, uh, neonatal jaundice, and overall, she's a personality and, uh, you know, a great clinical leader, I would say, and I had the pleasure to know her. In COVID-19, she's one of the person that I, 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 I made, I made a, a new friend without ever having a physical, you know, in-person meeting. Uh, we have met many times in webinar and of course over the last year i've uh, you know i have enjoyed the fellowship so without further ado i'd like to invite now dr tan 
to share her presentation. Dr. Tan, please. Thanks, Dr. Liu. Um, um, so, yes, hi. Uh, you may call me HS. So, I'm from Ampang. And um, I thank, you know, the my, I, I, I keep Dr. Anusha, Dr. Myron, for inviting uh, me to actually share some of um, my experiences. And thank you to Dr. Liu, which has done quite a lot of work in Sabah, also helping with um, um, the complex cases there, you know, and the ethical issues. And definitely, I congratulate the MOH for the major step that we are taking um, to acknowledge, you know, the ethical issues that we have during COVID-19. So uh, I'm no not a great expert, or you know, I'm not an expert, but I think I have quite a focus into developing the field in clinical ethics, I have a keen eye on identifying the problems, and my primary aim is still to support. So many of what I'm sharing today is going to be from the input and ongoing dialogues that we have, we have had with many clinicians, and I'm grateful for having you uh, who could share with me, open up, you know, to share with me your challenges and also ideas, how are we going to move forward? Um, so, um, should I read this? Um, yeah. Okay. okay. So you can read your own. So I, I will just start to share a few stories and, and these cases with elements of narratives are meant for moral imagination and triggers for further conversation. So these stories are fictional, uh, semi-fictional and are in no way related to a particular patient. So we have a son of 75 year old patient, unhappy of one way transfer decision to the general wards, COVID-19 pneumonia cat five, Day 23 transferred from ICU to the general wards as poor candidate to survive intubation in view of poor heart outcome. Complicated with non-STEMI, refused bypass, um, uh, NYHA class three, no, but no previous ICU admission. So patients which were unknown, son says, I want to go all out. So there was a new onset drop in GCS in the ward, uh, intubated to investigate and to decide the overall goals of care. So the, from the managing team, they were asking who should be authorized to actually make the best decision on behalf of this patient who lacks um, decision-making capacity. So you would see that there, there might be also some ethical dilemma and also family physician conflicts here. So another patient, 60 year old, retired high school teacher, underlying hypertension, dyslipidemia, premorbidly independent, presented with sudden syncopal attacks. So patient was brought in, treated as ST elevation MI, deteriorated, intubated before for anthropic support. So patient showed um, some clinical improvement, but GCS is poor. So a week later, he, he was deteriorating and you know without sedation, he was able to wince in pain, Pupils were three mm reactive, otherwise no cough, no corneal reflex. Um, family was informed that the prognosis was grim. And again, the managing team said, so how do we decide if a patient is for active management or comfort care? You know, is it ethical to opt for conservative management? So active management means uh, you need to go on with angiogram, hemodialysis uh, with high-risk consent. So we have also uh, pediatric cases, you know, a nine-year-old vegetative state due to TB meningitis, trach, ventilator dependent, almost in the ward for five months, and now new bout of lung infection, and CPAP was set up to SNV mode, you know, ventilator mode, and parents did not want to accept uh, to step down of care. And the only non-COVID patient in the pediatric ward, which is turning into a full COVID hospital, was not able to transfer out. The attending pediatrician is no longer there. And the current one says, you know, talking to the mother multiple times, but, you know, we, they, they still have big hopes for her. And that was the words. And is it right to, uh, you know, hasten the process of trying to ask the parents to step down when, when they are not prepared? So if you see on the other side on, on the graph, at, there are some of the data that we have gathered, you know, the cases that were referred to us in Hospital Ampang last year. This was last year's stats. And I, you see the majority of the issues will be end of life issues. Um, so today, 
Um, I speak today mindful of the groups that I identify with. So from HES, from CEC, from Pediatric Department of Hospital Ampang, MREC, MBC, and also I'm the receiver of the healthcare system in the country, a mother and a daughter and a friend um, to many as well. You know, so my, you know, so I hold other hats as well, you know, clinical, uh, resource trainer, educator, and I see you besides you uh, experiences, administrative and policy making experiences. So again, I'm, you know, a keen learner. Um, I will cite the original phrases and, you know, cite them accordingly, but I do not intend to prescribe or change any of your current policies and make no claims about what is the best test or methods. Okay, so whatever Dr. Tan says, you need to take with two pinches of salt. Okay, um, I am fully aware of how we are going to be more of a conceptual kind of um, discussion. Um, you know, while well, I will be sharing my observation analysis, but I can't help, you know, to, to feel disappointed with the gaps that we have in evidence and literature, you know, uh, on a lot of all these ethical issues. So uh, if you could relate to it or disagree to it, please, you know, or, or you are disagreeing to anything that uh, we'll be presenting, just, just let us know, okay? Okay, so you'll be wondering what the roles of bioethics, right? So what uh, bioethics remain an integral part in the response of the crisis in the world? And there is a small group of us, and we hope to see that it could we could forge a strong sense of solidarity um, to be able to create awareness on the moral distress that clinicians have and encourage steps and clinicians and healthcare managers could take to support each other. So I hope you know could we could help you to facilitate in the resolution of complex issues, conflicts, and also to enable and justify some of the safe and just uh, practices. So when it comes to practical reality uh, of um, you know how to actually carry on with those aims, you know. So sometimes when you have a case, you refer to the ethics uh, you know group and uh, we look at it. You know we uh, uh, try to analyze, give you some recommendation, and which are acceptable or feasible. And the clinician will make the final decision. So we remain advisory, advisory, and our recommendations are not binding. So we could sometimes sit down and chat and facilitate some of the conversations between the teams and also our family members. And also we hope to actually facilitate uh, policy making to help deliberate on the ethical aspects. You know, um, interprofessional education remain main part of our work, like like what we are doing now today. And um, you see, some of us will be doing a bit of advocacy work as well. So. By considering the clinical, legal, and social cultural borders, so that's where we try to actually draw the boundaries. You know, where are the areas where which are acceptable, which are the areas which are grey, and when there are choices which are equally problematic, we could only aim to actually seek the best one. Okay. So these are the writings, as what Dr. Liu has mentioned, that we we some something that we felt that it was a need that clinicians um, might want some guidance, and uh, we have tried to respond the best we could you know, uh, based on the input that we have gathered from the ground. Um, so what we are going to be doing today is might have some overlaps with some of the talks that I've been giving. Um, so we will just try to focus today on who, what, when, how of DNR and uh, end of life decision making. Okay, so what to do in the event of conflicts. And again, the discussion will involve more of a bedside clinical micro level uh, what would be your duties? Okay, what would be your duties to plan, to care, and what we should be doing, but not at more of the macro level, such as a resource uh, allocation, triaging, uh, of which the principles might actually conflict at different points. Okay, so um, as okay, so let's start off with um, asking if you could just uh, log on if you have another phone that you log on on poll.ev.com. 
and you just tap in who is you time 499 and if you could just tell us what do you think should decision making for dnr be the same for COVID 19 and non-covid 19 patients so it's just a yes no depends and um okay so if um would you able to if, if not we will, oh okay yes um so if you anonymous don't worry <laughs> so um this is something we do like you know sometimes because um there might not be just one right answer and and it's nice to see what everybody thinks about like you know should it be the same or it really depends on you know what are we talking about you know so uh but let's focus on dnr okay so we move on okay mm -hmm. so i think everybody would would be able to see the results most of you 60 percent say yes okay um no five percent one third would say mm, depends okay so one thing we need to know that the complexity of dying in the modern era is like you know is is you know we can we can actually kind of uh, you know uh, keep the patient alive for on and on and and you know life and death is not anymore a two stage life cycle okay so um, many are on borrowed time and you know they just go on and on and and just because we could medicine could okay so that's the 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 you know the the this one this kind kind of the problems that we have now. So, I do believe that self empowerment and generally public awareness on the importance to having conversation on dying is is still lacking. Um, similarly, there are many quantitative studies that have been trying to determine what the patient would want when it comes to dying. Just one example where they would whether they prefer to die at home and also that the associated barriers and, and Hospice Malaysia has tried in 2016 to show that all of the 600 people survey, you know, um, even though we know 50% of patients die in the hospital, we do not know how much die at home, but it shows that 60% of them would uh, rather die at home. And, and when we ask why do they think that they were not able to, if there is a reason they were not able to, and, and man, many have quoted interference by family members, and they feel maybe the, the, you know, the care would be better in the hospital, um, definitely, there's a small percentage talking about medical professionals, um, you know, interference of, of not able to die at home. So it's interesting and not surprising to see some of the influences from, you know, different aspects. And, and I do believe that some clinicians uh, might not still feel confident with dealing with death. Um, you know, they are worried about family expectations, legal implications, and, and we are still seeing patients with the capacity that uh, has been asking for AOR discharges to try to be at home. You know, um, it's clearer for cancer patients the way that we manage, but not many that has like advanced uh, NCDs and comorbids and, and um, you know, so we could use more of these studies to actually know and understand Malaysian better, uh, but always go for, you know, stories as well, you know, qualitative reports and they would be more insightful. And yeah, I just shared too, and to show you how um, different we are and simil similar we are at the same time, you know, a Chinese lady with uh, breast cancer advanced stage uh, care for inpatient, her five-year-old um, decided to help her to comb her hair and maintain this routine until the day she died. So something that created both fulfillment for both the mother and son, um, you know, and the same thing that happened to uh, a Malay lady, 40-year-old, and she has decided that, you know, she has young children and she decided to actually stay in the hospital. And um, you know, um, at, at at the end, at, at the last moment, she wished to take a shower, and she wished to dress up clean, and to have a clean image before 
uh, Allah and her husband agreed to assist her and her husband helped to comb her hair as well. And, and that in that sense, she actually uh, was able to find peace and calm moments. Um, and we hope these are the, the way that we should be dying, you know, the, the calm moments that we could achieve and attain by every single person, uh, you know, when the day comes. So if you see that it, it doesn't matter, you know, uh, that, that social cultural backgrounds that we come from, uh, we need to consider every time when we see a patient, you know. Um, um, so, but the thing is like, it's not enough for us to be competent about how much you know about a culture or a faith or how humble you think that you do not know enough. Uh, but for every person that you see, you know, the, the values and preference that they might hold individually um, might, might or might not be related to their social cultural background, their faith, their stated faith, their upbringing, education experiences, or even from the hospital experiences, their own identity, their relation to others. And, and remember that deep down the universal emotions and sentiments actually hold us the same, like what I've shared with the stories. And so always do not assume, you know, you need to get your psychosocial history story, try to understand the how and why and put yourself through that, that different lens, you know, putting yourself in their shoes. So, um, so these are the challenges and barriers that I find that would be potential areas to actually have more um, future research, you know, um, the challenges and barriers we have when it comes to end of life decision, you know, so most of it we have actually kind of touched on. Um, also, just to mention the lack of support and skills training for clinicians to actually feel more comfortable. They feel that they are supported in terms of ethical support, legal support, psychosocial support as well. So, and when COVID-19 came, you know, with what I've been giving you as a background, um, you know, COVID-19 gives us that time pressure. Um, they, they give us uh, critical bedside decisions to make on top of that time pressure. And, and there are many changes in the practice that we have because um, we now have the whole public health crisis in within the walls of the hospitals. You need to make sure that the, the disease is contained, you know, so the infection control barriers is the main uh, thing that is part of our care nowadays. So it definitely has strained many of us to the max. And, you know, most of the time we are dealing it alone and with difficult decision making, you know, and conversation with patients, families and, um, you know, and, and we, and, and there are many studies which are ongoing about the psychological impact and also the moral distress that we are facing. So my job today is trying to find areas which are clear, um, you know, areas that are clear, you know, steps that we could actually take, you know, of course there are many more other uh, gray areas. So first thing is actually important for us to, to be clear about the definition terminology. So when we talk about DNA CPR, um, I, I think it denotes more specifically of CPR and, and, you know, um, there are also literature talking about A&D, allow natural death, and, and this would probably reflect better end-of-life philosophy uh, of providing comfort rather than cure, but uh, it's not commonly used in Malaysia. Um, so I think DNR, the term itself, um, I think it's very familiar to us, it's very common to us. Um, it may represent resuscitation steps and also include other life-sustaining therapy, you know, such as dialysis. So. Um, I think it is important that we don't view DNR order as a blanket decision for conservative management, you know, like, you know, not for intubation, chest compression, every single, you know, treatment like dialysis or blood transfusion. So it's important to actually look at DNR, um, not in isolation from other aspects of end of life care. So, um, so we, we need to try and focus a discussion around, you know, disclosure first, you know, breaking that bad news, aligning expectations, you know, and, and, and see how far we could actually do a, a still a shared decision making during COVID um, and to focus on what is the overall goals of care for the patient. 
um, you know, it's good to actually specify what is involved in the decision and so communication. So I will just share this because I think that today's talk is not about what are your duties because it's very clear that your duty of care as a clinician, as a doctor during COVID-19 is to focus on the individual patient, but at the same time to recognize, um, you know, the, the, the need uh, for a public health um, uh, containment of the pandemic. So I, I think we, we need to know that that duties are there and we couldn't run away. It's a prima fussy duty, something that in front of you that you, you need, the first thing you need to do, of course, if there are any other obligations or, or principles that come into play and, you know, that's where we will be thinking whether we could actually kind of, um, you know, have a second option, okay? So, um, so when it comes to duty of care, so CPR, you know, the one part of the, the area where we are talking about DNR today, um, I think um, the safety, timing, effectiveness of CPR during COVID-19 cannot be more emphasized during COVID, uh, you know, this period. And um, knowing how the situation are at the front line, like in the ED, I believe that we need to ensure that safety always comes first. So Dr. Liu is here and I think he would totally agree that you need to make sure that safety comes first. And, and we, we could allow a bit of, I think it's okay to actually allow slight delay because, because of that. Okay, so you, you, you need to dawn on your PPE, you need to find a suitable place um, and, and you need to confirm your code status. So those delays are still in a way acceptable, but definitely you could not be justifying your delay because of the reason that you don't have a bait, um, you know, that, that you know there are not enough bait, you're not going to resuscitate the patient or, or you're looking at it's a COVID-19 patient, you, you, uh, you know, you decided not to resuscitate or because of the social status. Um, and because this is the reason, because we know delays can still be reduced and anticipated, you know, um, in a way that if we plan it earlier and we know that this patient is going to have an arrest and we need to make sure that our PP is always there, you know, where should we resuscitate a patient if there is one. And again, there's a duty for us to actually plan this training for different scenarios to ensure that CPR is uh, effective. So even for those with advanced comorbids and suspected COVID, um, and you do not even you, you do not know their wishes. Uh, you know they have no discussions before on what are their goals, and the split seconds decision must still be made. And you still need to make sure that timely resuscitation is provided. Uh, you know if required. So let's let's go to the first question: Who decides? I think this is going to be a very common question that you always get. You know, um, who who's going to decide? You know, um, and I think I would put patient first, like if the patient is there. Okay. So that's what bioethics will say, patient first, okay. So, okay, let's see how it, it is not so as easy as we think as well, you know, during COVID-19. Um, you know, whether, you know, some would say this is a Western concept and whether it's relevant during COVID, you know, I would say that it is relevant and definitely it's compromised um, to a certain extent. Uh, we know that respect for autonomy um, is something that um, they have the right to refuse, to say no, or to even wave to a family or physician and an expanded kind of uh, no sh um, definition for autonomy also um, includes relational autonomy where you know you make your decision based on your relation to others okay so they, they, nobody stands alone you know most of the time we are making decisions because of others our family members and 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 during COVID-19 um, this delicate balance of how much a patient should decide okay 
um, culturally or situationally, whatever it is, it has definitely been compromised to a certain ex extent for both COVID-19 and non-COVID-19 patients. So we, we need to know there's a legal boundary in here remain uh, the, the Public Health Act, which gives the MOH, the PG, the power to set what needs to be done in terms of isolation, quarantine, testing, and treatment to contain the pandemic. So I think in terms of that utilitarian and paternalistic approach during a public health um, crisis is ethically justified for the safety of all. Um, so, but but you might you, you need to remember it's just this isolation, quality testing, and treatment. So it's it's just based on trying to contain the pandemic, not any other parts of clinical care. Okay, so but it's still important to actually balance that population need and to make sure that excessive burdens and harms are not imposed to individuals um, in terms of their well-being and health in the name of public utility. So one way is actually to talk about personalism and to be reminded that we still need to respect the person in front of you, their individual values as best and we could, and even during public health crisis, um, you know, those who are dying. And I think their wishes need to be honored as best as we could within that confined public health, you know, um, interests and measures. And, and I think the first thing we need to make sure that to give them information, I think they, um, I think it is right for them to have the information where, where they need to be well informed what's going on, you know, uh, you know, you, you need to keep them well informed and, and to, to make sure that they, they reduce their distress, you know, and, and also I think it's their right to know, okay. Um, so, and, and your part, you need to make sure that you are doing your best, you know, you are not, uh, you are following the SOB, you are following the evidence-based medicine uh, uh, accordingly for COVID-19, okay? So um, there are other things as well that you might want to consider if a person which is, which is dying that he, he, he wants to refuse care, you know, whether you would, you know, uh, consider to actually kind of uh, trying to honor that, that wish. So, but if the patient is able to make some, you know, decision, you know, then we look at capacity. And again, when capacity, it's always whether the patient would be able to communicate a choice, understand your information, appreciate the situation. And, you know, it's rational about what he's choosing, but always be mindful that sometimes incapacitation can be temporary because of the state of delirium, fever, hypoxia, uremia, sedation or stroke, or even fear, anxiety. And I think autonomy itself also, you know, you need to know, you know, what are the influences to that, that, that decision-making, that free agent when he's, he's not free agent most of the time. Definitely there's influences in terms of the stress that he's facing, his family, the relationship that you have with him and the power differences that, that most of the time we are not aware about when we are in a clinic or, you know, when the patient is in front of us and also other social determinants in terms of like, you know, his, his social background, educational level. And, and, you know, if, if we, we are able to, I know this is definitely much compromised as well. I think we might, we need to be reminded that, you know, most medical decision-making still need that shared, um, you know, approach and, and, you know, and now we are having COVID-19 and, you know, we have the legal boundaries. So how much we could actually allow that shared decision-making? Because I think that that shared decision-making is important to build trust, to maintain the trust, to allow a bit of self-determination, the right to information, and still you still have a bit of authority in terms of like uh, trying to recommend the best treatment for the patient. Um, so I think when, with this in mind, and if you have a patient in front of you now, you know, in the ED, and you would be looking at, you know, if the patient is kept, 
uh, has the capacity, you ask him or her, you know, this is what is going on and you have COVID-19, you know, we are going to admit you here and this is what we are going to do for you. But if let's say they came in with, uh, you know, in a incapacitated uh, situation and you'll be lo locating what would be their wishes. So so I think it's not a common practice yet in Malaysia, but but I think we are trying to progress and trying to make sure that patient um, has has this um, wishes being uh, noted down somewhere, you know, has been discussed about the goals of care for those with life uh, limiting disease, you know, those with advanced comorbids. And, and if you fail to find this, you know, um, and, and, you know, the next thing you know, will be turning to the family members for a substituted judgment. Okay. So, so we, we'll go about substituted judgment later on, but uh, just bear in mind that, you know, for now, Malaysia doesn't have a legal statute for it and probably give, given the poor public um, you know, awareness for it. But remember, it could still be recognized if you are worried that you know, there's an AD in front of you and whether you, you could actually honor it. Okay, so if there's such a case arises for judicial review, they could still reference it to the common law and also the local professional code of ethics. MMC has mentioned about AD in their code of professional conduct and their consent for treatment has uh, has actually stated on written AD. Okay, so AD can be used, but it cannot be applied to illegal activities like euthanasia and, and termination of pregnancy. Um, you still need to look whether it's relevant, whether it's valid in terms of the clinical circumstances. And, and there is also the priority for professional judgment, emergency scenario, and also circumstances which are uncertain. I think that would apply during COVID-19. Okay, so if you need more information about AD, you know, end of life care, okay, you could always go back to the professional guidelines as listed here to actually guide you. So these are the things that is, we would say the guidelines there, you know, so it's, it's best that you, you look at it, okay? So if, if you're asking about like, you know, I've heard about advanced care planning and AD, you know, what's the difference? And, and you know, AD will take, you know, I think ages for it to, to be there in terms of getting the legal, you know, um, support for it. Um, AD in other countries is probably still also focused on more instructive medical care, you know, whether you want this care or you, 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 you know, most of the time it's about, um, you know, care that you do not wish to have. Okay. so. Um, it's very individualistic as well. So ACP is something that Malaysians are using. Malaysian clinicians, the palliative uh, care physicians are using, you know, is something that might actually include some of the instructive, um, you know, uh, medical um, wishes, you know, but also they have more focus on values, wishes, things that matter to the patient the most, you know, the burdens that they are willing to accept, you know, who they want to actually be the one to make decision for them. And so it considers a bit more multicultural and also the local context. Um, so when it comes now to the surrogate decision making, if the patient doesn't have a, you know, we do not know what he wants and, and you know, and, and there's nothing that we could uh, uh, fall on then, then it will be the, the next of kin. Uh, but again, surrogate decision making could technically or ethically could be anyone, okay, in a way, you know, so we don't have um, something that in the country to say that, um, you know, legally, who is the first person that should be making decision for you, that hierarchy is not there. So the only, the best thing we have is Mental Health Act, where they actually listed out spouse, children, parents, and siblings, but again, it's not what hierarchy that we have. And and we don't have the legal regulation on having an act where, where you have the enduring or lasting power of attorney where someone could actually make a decision making for you in the event that you are permanently incapacitated. So we do not have that act, okay? So next of kin is still socially and professionally recognized, not always the best one, 
but again, um, you know, uh, that's all we have and we need to support them. We need to make sure that they are able to demonstrate qualities like, you know, cap uh, the capacity, they are available and they are willing to serve and family with the patient's preference. Um, so when it comes to substituted judgment, it just means that, um, you know, the surrogate decision making, we try as best as they could, you know, to, to think about what the patient would have wanted if she or he would were competent to do so. So you are trying to think on behalf of the patient. And, you know, it, it may not still be perfect because it's definitely could be quite subjective and it, it is, um, um, you know, uh, surrogates might not know, no patients might change their mind and patients might actually want the family input, uh, you know, and family might have bias or any other conflict of interest. Um, um, so, and also it might actually conflict with what you think is the best for the patient. So, um, so that's best uh, substitute the judgment. So back to COVID-19. So I think this, this process, you know, that the patient autonomy is a bit compromised, you know, shared decision making is compromised and, and, you know, family wishes may not be met, you know, um, you know, even you are not able to, to actually see them, you know, um, as, as, as best as you could, you know, very short family briefings, most of the time on the phone, you try your best through the video. So I think, I think it's definitely very uh, stressful for everyone. Um, so I think that sense you have that duty, that, that compensatory kind of uh, duty to actually make sure that you're doing your best. Okay, you still you try your best to respect the person and to understand that, that distress that, that they have. And so try to build your relationship early you know, um, in the ED itself, you know, try to recognize the emotion and values, try to build consent, senses as best as you could. Um, so this is something that we, um, I think I've tried to kind of propose, you know, for who decides during a DNR and, and, and for the purpose of both COVID and non-COVID patients. So, um, so it's something to do, just, just, a, just a guide, you know, where um, that who decides, okay. So it might not be perfect again, okay? So you, you could have a look, you know, if the patient has capacity, yes, go ahead. If no, you look at the surrogates and if they are not there, then you you definitely need to go to try and consult the hospital committees. Uh, but if there, there is some wishes, there's known, you know, especially for those with um, advanced comorbids and whether you think it's okay to follow their wishes. And if there is no wishes known, then it's best back to best interest. Okay, so best interest, um, I think for COVID-19, I think that is something that we use definitely during even any other medical decision making when the patient's wishes is not there. And the calculation that we use um, to actually decide depends on the survival rates, the prognosis, the quality of life, um, the benefits, harms and burdens of that intervention. Um, so we could actually include as well known values and patient goals. So it doesn't need to be just medical um, you know, um, decision making. So the best interests can um, be um, in the best thing that we have, but again, it could be vague. It could be difficult to do calculation. Um, and also you might not be doing what patient would have wanted you to do. Okay, so, um, and because, and again, he's, 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 he's incapacitated. So if there's no way for you to find out anymore. Um, but there are a lot of things that we might not be able to consider, you know, um, so that's best interest. So when it comes to best interest, um, and DNR, so the, the word fertility will come in. Okay, so we are talking about if a treatment will be non-beneficial or would be causing great harms or burden. Okay, so we're going back to criteria of fertility. So when, when you look at fertility, there's a few things which are clear. Okay, so when you talk about physiological fertility, you're talking about imminent death. 
So meaning the patient's vitals are crashing despite maximum support. And, and when you talk about a little bit uh, less than that, you know, not so bad, you know, so it's, it's medical futility. It depends quantitatively if you think that the treatment will most likely not achieve a benefit or qualitatively not giving the overall benefit to the patient. So you could think of quantitative as the likelihood of uh, achieving that, that success and qualitative is more of overall qualitative wise, does it really give back the patient the quality of life and, you know, that the one, the goals that you, you are hoping to achieve. So nowadays we are, because, because it's so, so difficult to actually um, define. So nowadays we are looking at futility as uh, something that you should be um, going through as a process-based approach. So what happens, um, um, so we, we don't throw the ball back to the patient, but again, patients are the experts on their goals and preference and clinicians are the experts on whether those treatment will achieve those goals and and preference. And I could share with you more if you are interested to know about faith-based bioethics perspective on futility, you know, in another session. So, okay, so um, so we are going to go through another, you know, poll. Hopefully you, you could actually share your answers. Okay, so because now we are going into the more controversial part and when the time comes, you know, we are looking at futility, our actions or omissions, a form of killing or allowing to die. So how do we differentiate the both? And if uh, I, I wish that we have more time and to have more examples and we could actually kind of uh, discuss about them. Uh, so today we'll be scraping the surface on, you know, basic principles, but I think, are you, are you ready? So here, here is a thought experiment. And let's say Anne Mary Lim is dying of an incurable disease. So her family and her doctors have agreed to withdraw her ventilator in the morning, knowing that she would die quickly. But her greedy nephew, Joe, has seen her view Will and knows that he will be cut off of the inheritance unless she dies before midnight. So that evening he sneaks into the ICU, turns off the ventilator. Um, so the, nep um, the nephew actually performs exactly the same acts the doctors would have done the following morning. So was the nephew's act permissible? or defensible, okay? So how can we say that the nephew killed her, but the doctors may be allowed her to do that? Let's say if that's your answer. So so let, let's see if what would you answer. The first question would, would be um, the easier one, you know, was whatever what the nephew has done is 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 right. Um, did she just, did he, this, uh, did he just, you know, <laughs> um, allowing her to die or <laughs> killing her, okay? Was the nephew's act defensible means um, will he not get into jail, I suppose, like, you know? <laughs> has, has he committed a homicide? First degree, <laughs> it, it looks like maybe a first degree homicide here, right? Okay, so. So 85% of you say no. Some of you say, um, hmm, yes. Okay. Um, yeah, it, it definitely is not as easy as we think, you know, but just, just looking at it because, you know, the doctors will be doing the same the next day. And, you know, the next question would be, um, let's say the 90% of you who say that he killed her. Uh, and why do we say that he killed her, but the doctors are not killing her and the doctors are just merely allowing her to die. And so if you would, um, you know, try and type out your answers and, and it would be quite interesting to find out from each other, um, you know, 
intent is different, planned, unplanned. Yep. Nephew had intention for death for personal gain. Doctors has no personal gain. Intention, yes. Intentions are different. Or you disagree that, you know, you know, it's the both are killing the patient or okay. <laughs> Further with intention. So intention is the the most difficult thing to actually kind of prove most of the time the things that we do, you know. Same actions, but different intention. Okay. Motives, intention. Okay, so doctors hold ethical rights. Okay, so to cue or Nephew had intention to cure, okay. So um, yes, intent is the issue, okay. So, okay, so we'll stop here. So um, yes, um, so intent is the most important thing. So it's about what is your intention at a point of time and whether other effects that you see is just a, a side effects, okay. A merely, we say a merely forcing, you know, it's going to happen, it might happen but you had no choice because you need to actually achieve, um, you know, um, a good end for a patient. So before we actually go into double effect, which is a principle that we use in such situation. So I, I like Andrew McGee because he, he kind of uh, give another analogy. You know, if we withdraw a life-saving treatment, do, do we cause death or allow the patient to die? So he says that when you flip a light switch, the lights go off. When you flip the ventilator switch, the patient dies. But again, um, you know, the ventilator was there to actually stop the dying process. So, so he, we are giving the ventilator breath. So we are just stopping that action and the patient dies from his disease. So does it sound the same or not the same? Okay, so um, that, that is his point of view. You know, it's something uh, which was not there, but we, we gave the patient something to help. And you know, and we stop this action, and the, the patient dies from his disease. So okay, so you could uh, kind of apply it um, to other situation. You know, like you know, in extubation or or you know, stopping the dialysis. Okay. So double effect is actually a doc doctrine or a principle that says that um, uh, action might be permissible, uh, even though it's causing serious harm, such as the death of a human. If, if it's a side effect of promoting something else, you're try, trying to promote a good end, okay? So that there is kind of five criteria that you, you need to fulfill. So let's say if you give an example of trying to relieve pain with morphine. So if your intention was to actually relieve pain and a good intention must be there, so your intention is good, okay? So you want to relieve pain, but because of the disease, will be overpowering the patient who, who is feeling more comfortable, you know, that the patient might actually die in the process. And, and you know, so you're trying to aim for that relieving of pain and, and at the same time, the, the patient actually died, okay? Uh, rather than you are trying to, to, you know, to trying to stop the pain by killing the patient, okay? So you, you can't be saying that uh, I'm trying to relieve the pain by healing the patient. So there are, you know, um, an essay actually was wrote up by one Dr. Anonymous where you, you can read about it, like, you know, Debbie is over, you know, where he said he looked at the patient and the patient was uh, struggling and he decided to just gave her a dose of uh, high dose morphine 
and you know he says that okay by you know you feel comfortable now so so he's trying to, what he did was cure the patient so that to relieve the pain of the patient so that that is not the right way so the, so so again these five criteria is something that we can uh, remember the act must be morally good good effects intended bad effect is merely foreseen and the bad effect is not the means to the good effect and you know again the good must outweigh the bad okay so but of course there are opponents to it you know they say you know in that sense are we talking about this is the moral free zone that we we don't have to be responsible for our actions you know whether they're intended or not and and uh, why should it be different in this context you know and and sometimes we tend to worry about what are your intentions of the families and you know they are all they are not always pure we wouldn't know okay and there is Anton Chekhov, which is the you know the literary giant who who writes about you know three brothers and they are trying to to they 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 have uh, you know father which is you know um, a quite quite an evil person and and you know whenever there is someone in the family who has long been ill hopelessly ill there come painful moments when all timidly secretly at the bottom of their hearts long for his death. So I think that that is something that's being fed to me as well on the ground that's saying that sometimes they do not know the intention of the family when, you know, so um, again, you know, when the patient's voice is not there, it's going to be very hard for us to, to know what to do, okay? So, and the next thing is about like withdrawing withholding. I think this is much clearer, easier to understand, and there is no morally significant difference between the both. And you might actually even overtreat for um, um, being uh, withholding, because you're not giving and also not giving the chance to remove remove the uncertainty about prognosis. So sometimes it's uh, maybe it's better to actually withdraw. But again, if you look at this pack of uh, dialysate and and you know if it has it has finished and the next thing mm -hmm. you'll be thinking whether I should put on a new bag. Okay, so if you don't put on a new bag, doesn't mean that you are withholding or are you withdrawing dialysis? So sometimes it's just the same. You know, it, it, it's the same. Okay, so. Um, but emotionally, it feels definitely so much different. And that is something that we need to recognize because these are what the clinicians and also the, the nurses are feeling, um, you know, so um, we, we could not ignore or dismiss it. So in the end of the day, it goes back also, you need to assess the benefit and abundance of, of that care, you know, whether it's for the best interest of the patient, is that what he wants in terms of his goals? And you need to be honest and you need to have that open conversation uh, with the family, you know, even though it's the first time we are doing and we are doing it during COVID-19 and, and that is where you need to just be open about the struggle that you have. Um, so if you are interested to know about the emotional struggles of a physician in terms of uncertainties, letting go, or how we could still maintain hope for patients, families, uh, these are some of the books or articles that you could go to. Um, so again, you know, this is now COVID-19. So would you be able to describe the feelings or challenges that you have faced during this one year? Um, you know, just one, two words, you know, uh, what is the one thing that pop up in your mind in terms of the challenges that we are facing? Okay, um, it's okay if we can move on, if you don't have, um, so, so, so that we could uh, just skip this. So, um, okay, so the timing and circumstances, again, we know it's COVID-19, you know, we have the answers to this, we have resources that we need to juggle, you need, we need to uh, mobilize, 
and, and also the public health interest, as we have mentioned. So many patients with, um, you know, uh, advanced comorbids, definitely, you know, previously it was not explored before. We do not know what they want. And we say that whether the families are ready for us when we are going to DNR, are we prepared? Do we know what to do? And, and how are we going to make sure that what we are doing is um, right? Okay. Um, um, so I think how to go about it is the next point where we are trying to see whether we could um, um, bring you through steps that you could actually, you know, kind of uh, carry out. Uh, first thing, you have those triggers that you feel that you're looking at a patient would not, which would not be benefiting from the intensive care or resuscitation. And that's where you need to actually try and assess whether they meet with the indication, whether you have the appropriate level of decision-making, you, know, uh, you know, followed by disclose and discuss with the family as early as possible. And when once the family is ready, you inform, you manage, and, re and resolve if there are any conflicts. So you need to try and align expectation, maintain the trust, and allow some shared decision making. So when the triggers come in, usually you look at patient which has poor response to current treatment, disease progression with severe major organ dysfunction, failure, repeated hospitalization, or they actually have the wishes. Um, so you assess for indication for DNR end of life. Look at fertility again, like what we have covered: physiological fertility, medical fertility. Is it because of the quality of life, or is it what um, the burden and the risk of the the therapy you are trying to consider is what is more than what they are able to accept? Um, then the next thing you'll be asking whether the level of decision making. Am I at the right position to make that that decision? Okay, so this is end of life. This is like you know death itself. So. If you have the time, I think team-based consensus is important. Shared decision-making, if you could, with the family. Under time pressure, I think decision must be done by at a certain level of, uh, you know, um, experienced uh, specialists, you know, senior members, and communicated empathically to the family members. And the preconditions are, again, you must have the assessment. You must make sure that you have uh, disclosed and, and, and family has started to actually accept and, and their expectations align. So when you want to break bad news, you know, there are many algorithms which are there. Uh, you could use spikes, okay? And it's a very easy setup, perception, invitation, knowledge, empathize and explore and summarize and strategize. Um, you know, you could use these spikes for breaking bad news when it's a grave diagnosis, you know, it, when, when there are clinical deterioration, presence of fertility, imminent death. Um, uh, when it comes to the next stage where you say, okay, maybe there's time that we are going to discuss on goals of care. So goals of care is basically based on, you know, you are going to discuss on the disease trajectory. You're talking about patients' goals and values, the risk and burdens of each intervention, and you are going to decide on resuscitation, ceiling of care, comfort measures. Okay, so some units and disciplines are actually quite familiar with goals of care, okay, like the oncology or the palliative care physicians. But I think many of us has been doing similar conversation. So I think it's important to have that skill, you know, in every discipline, including patients, uh, you know, patients with advanced NCDs. Um, and the common question that I we used to get also is actually whether it's okay to just inform some of the decision, um, you know, and 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 it's right to feel that it's better that we just inform. Um, so that, that's where we are looking at informed assent. Okay, just assent means to agree or give permission, of which written authorization is not required, but you still need to document. This intervention could be minor ones, you know, some things are just, uh, that's the best thing to do, but it could be for resuscitation, very impactful decision, critical decision, life-sustaining therapy. And it's clear that, when it's clear that you think that it's not going to be beneficial and you are trying to op to give the option to proceed or withhold, might actually cause more confusion, emotional burden and guilt for the family. So as a clinician, you need to, you know, kind of make that judgment once you know the patient and family better, okay? so. 
Oh, but overall, we do not think that DNR withholding life-sustaining treatment needs a stamp or signature for the clear reason that the emotional burden that we are imposing on families, and they will be thinking they are the ones who have, um, you have, have, you know, killed their mother or father, you know. So I think I think that we need to be very careful and tactful and sensitive about this part. Okay, so when, when that, that has, we have done the best that we could with, to discuss the next thing to implement the necessary management plan, just make sure that you respect the person all the time, maintain their dignity, you know, again, be empathetic with the family, uh, consider agreed plans for goals of care, try to provide care that maximize comfort and also consider compassionate care steps and psychosocial spiritual support, allow visitation and saying goodbyes. Again, document your decision discussion, inform your teams, ensure that everybody knows and everybody is on the same plans, you know, debrief them if you need to audit your M&Ms and, and again, regular review of the process that you have. And so when you have disagreement, again, you go back and discuss with the family and, um, you know, you need to involve the consultants, the HOD to arbitrate and, and you know, if, if you need, you need to seek for administrative, MAC or ethics uh, consultation or facilitation. You need to respect, sometimes they need that, that you know, they need, they need some intervention to actually have that closure. So you just assure that the maximum effort and comfort has been provided. So what, what happens is when you have a dilemma, you know that, you know, everybody's disagreeing and that's where it comes to the clinical ethics where we try and analyze through this framework. And um, at the same time, we'll be, you know, looking at whether we have actually connect enough with the patient or family in front of you, you know, whether, um, you know, I think the sitting down and chat to apologize, you know, sometimes to the shortcomings that we are having, you know, the crisis that we are having and, you know, and, and asking how is, how he or she is going through and that, that really matters. Okay, so um, what matters the most to the patient um, you know, might not be something that you think matters to the patient, but, but, you know, it matters to him or the family and, you know, things that they view some of the things that we are doing and the way that we are viewing things might be different. And we, we need to be uh, uh, acknowledging that. Um, but again, most of the time, most of the cases of dilemma, there is no easy solution. We are not solving. We try the best to actually resolve, try find meaning, for those that are experiencing loss, um, you know, try to find meaning those are conflicted, okay? Um, so if we have um, some time, okay, so if I could just share this, we are finishing now, I could just share the last story, um, if you allow me. So this is a narrative uh, which is written by Lisa Colley. So, um, so this is where when he, she was uh, just a resident and she was writing about nine grueling rounds of discussion. The healthcare team won the battle in a victory that bore a frightening resemblance to an ultimatum. And Ms. S. Sons agreed to sign the DNR order for their 70 year old mother. I chalk up the nauseated feeling in the pit of my stomach to my inexperience in the field. So we had stripped his, this family of a choice and left them with no option but palliative care. Medicine is not just about treating units by attending assured me. Attending means probably a, a specialist and it can often involve appreciating the necessity to say no. So Ms. S died the following afternoon. So later on, when a few years later, I was visited by the haunting memory of that, I rushed quickly to find the respiratory therapist providing PPB to Mr. M. So Mr. M is a 79 year old man with a history of ESRF, coronary artery disease and dementia. So he had been admitted two days earlier with signs of coronary edema. 
So despite appropriate treatment, he had been found by his nurse to be somnolent, tachypnic, and she had contacted the nephrology and ICU team for urgent assessment. So chaos swirled around Mr. M's bed as frantic measures were taken to support his oxygen needs and his expression was tired, vacant, his bloated frame stretched by the mounting fluid in his tissue. So transferring Mr. M to the ICU for invasive life-sustaining therapy would be a temporary solution for the irreversible damage from his long-standing disease, which is an organ failure. So while his son sat Asian face in the hallway, Mr. M's wife stood anxiously over her husband, whispering promises of his imminent recovery and reminding him of his enduring strength for fighting his disease. So the, anticipating a difficult road ahead, I called my senior resident and we huddled in a nearby conference room with Miss Ann and her son to discuss the next step in his care. My senior resident apologized for the late hour and the hasten discussion before gently relaying the facts to Mr. M's critical status and his option for life-sustaining treatment and reminding his family of his poor prognosis. So this is in the ED. And through tears, Ms. M asked the same question. I had now heard many family members ask, why can't we start dialysis now? Why can't we continue breathing for him? And we gave her the same answer. And there's just no point. And after a moment's pause, my senior resident turned to the wife and son and said, tell me about Mr. M. It was such a simple question, yet it empowered the family opening the door to a wealth of information critical to understanding the man who was awaiting someone else's decision about his fate. So Mr. M's family welcomed the opportunity to allow him pass a seat at the table. And Ms. M laughed as she thought about his obsession with fishing and European cars. His sons described about his adventurous trips through Italy. And Ms. M and her son smiled sadly at one another at some point later, as if suddenly recognizing how much Mr. M has changed over the past few years. And my senior resident described the reasons why we are avoiding invasive treatment, you know, discussed the cost of comfort and asked whether that was what Mr. M would want. And Ms. M and her son quietly digested this info and with tears streaming down their faces, they nodded in agreement. So I think it's, you see that there are different situations, but again, you know, you, you'll be asking who, is this person in front of you and, and you you want to keep the family reminded about like, you know, uh, what would he have wanted, how he would have, um, a, a, you know, wish at, at this point of time and, you know, to actually have that patient at the seat, having a seat at the table is, 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 is the best thing that we could have, okay? So that's conclusion would be, you know, there are definitely rooms to grow in terms of end of life, decision-making and care in Malaysia. And during the COVID-19 crisis, it's just important to follow the right steps, you know, the steps that you know, and to make sure that there's adequate level of decision-making for DNR. Definitely there's duty to care and also duty to plan as well. So try to support each other, listen, engage, and connect with your colleagues and patient family. And again, you know, that medical humility that we need to know that we, we, we have that limitation, we know the uncertainties and there and consult and seek help if, if you need to. So, um, you know, it's very heartwarming to know that MOH has actually acknowledged the ethical struggles that issues and struggles that we have. And these are some of uh, the drafts that has been, um, you know, discussed and, and, you know, written up by many clinicians. And uh, we hope that it will be released and shared with many. Um, so if you have any ethical dilemma, dispute, or even legal concerns, and this, uh, I would say, would be the sum of um, the the you know, the, the groups or agency that you could actually approach, okay, when it comes to legal professional ethics, you know, definitely the MMC or the Bagia Amalan Purbatan, you know, if you are talking about clinical ethics, it will be in Ampang, UITM has as well, um, you know, you have one online, 
consultation service for COVID-19, um, which was uh, which is represented by a few from UM, UITM, IJN. You could uh, equally utilize that, and also some of us which are doing um, clinical ethics work as well at Ipo, Sabah, Manjo, Slayan. So that's my last slide. Okay, so thanks. Okay, thank thank you very much, Dr. Tan. Thank you very much, uh, Huisiu, for your talk. A very comprehensive talk, but I think uh, you managed to take us through, you know, in a very stepwise approach of uh, what is this issue on do not resuscitate. And I think, uh, you know, even though the the talk is in the context of the COVID nineteen pandemic, but I think. Uh, as what you have mentioned, you know, these are issues that we face, you know, before COVID-19 and certainly after COVID-19, which I believe in, in, at some point COVID-19 will go away and we still have to face with this reality that, you know, our patients, you know, will, will, you know, will have illnesses that we have done our best. And of course, you know, despite our best effort, we don't cure all. And there are times when we have to recognize uh, that the you know the the care of the patient has to transcend beyond the curative agenda, and I think uh, you know what you shared with us is important. It's not just for COVID nineteen. Uh, with that, I think uh, I I will move to the questions. We have quite a good few questions. Uh, perhaps we we'll start with this one here. I believe this is from a doctor from the emergency. If a COVID nineteen patients or their surrogates may want all treatment, even if futile. Uh, are we physicians legally liable if we do not provide it? Okay. Um, is this Dr. Muzaffar from Sudan? <laughs> um, okay. So, um, again, when it comes to liability, uh, um, um, you know, the, the law is, is not much that is being um, released or, you know, guidance from MMC or even some of the medical societies about like, um, you know, are we protected if you're going to do something, you know, like in the UK, so they have these issues about like uh, triaging and what if you make decisions and, and, you know, that because of time pressure and, you know, we, we need to actually save the most lives, you know, and, and family will be disputing and, and saying that, you know, so that the one thing that we need to have is actually a clear and transparent flow in the beginning. And, and we need to make sure that that flow, you know, some countries actually make sure that the public's involved, you know. So let's say we have a crisis as a society, we need to decide this is who we are going to save, you know. And, and you know, those things are not there. Okay, those things are not there. So we, we it's going to be a very distressing bedside, um, you know, decisions that you make. And, you know, when you, uh, but, but again, you know, whether are you doing it safe, uh, safely, are, are you, sure that you know you should be consulting someone are you sure that you know the prognostic um, assessment has been done um, um, correctly you know and and I think those things what we are not having and the things that we have would be more complication I, I would say that if you want to try and avoid um, to get into that trouble at the end of the day or post-COVID and I think it's important to actually start to to converse and you know break the bad news early and tell the families you know we are we are looking at your father he's he looks he looks in a very bad state and and you know we are not sure whether he will make it or not you know prepare them and telling them that you are trying your best and and I think family would be appreciative if they know that their family their loved ones has been has been receiving the best care you know that 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 communication to let them know that you have been doing your best and. And I think that communication is the, always the problem 
that if we don't achieve that, that's how we actually get into trouble. You know, it's not about whether you have done the right thing or not. It's just about how they perceive um, what has been given or not being provided. And again, when you reach the court is a legal different kind of game. Okay, it's the games of the lawyers. And we know that we don't have strong defense lawyers that would protect whatever uh, good thing or right thing you're doing at, at this point of time. And I think uh, you need to be aware that, you know, you don't get caught up with that, that, that legal kind of fear too much as well. Yeah, well, I'm reading the question and I, I read it, you know, at least two times you know, to try to understand the question behind the question. I would like to rephrase it in a way that, of course, the question is about COVID-19, but uh, I suppose uh, if we have in the emergency, emergency department, that when we have somebody coming in with a very serious infection, uh, you know, like say any pneumonia, a patient who comes in with a very, very bad pneumonia and has respiratory failure, and emergency physicians often face some of this dilemma. If the patient has, uh, let's say, uh, no previous diseases, you know, somebody who is claimed to be healthy versus somebody who has had a very chronic, very debilitating you know, illness and coming in with a pneumonia, you know, would, that, would that change the context in terms of how we approach uh, patients uh, you know, in terms of not resuscitation and uh, you know discussion on the you know life issues. Would that change? You know, if we, if we don't talk about COVID nineteen, we talk about any serious infection. So, um, so you are saying that it would be almost the same dispute that we might be facing pre COVID as well. Am I right? Yeah. Um, and and I, I would say that if you are not able to assess, you know, fully what are the goals or, you know, you are not able to assess what would be the prognosis for the patient in front of you. And I think that the first step you do is actually to provide that care. And I, I think there's no wrong with that. And, and you know, it, it doesn't mean that if you are going to go active at the beginning, that you're going to go active until the end. Um, um, so sometimes they might not have that room to actually discuss or you know to think about what should be done at the ED, you know, um, you know, you still need to proceed. And but so if you are going to get to like you know discuss again and again, you are facing, um, you know, uh, ref, ref, not refractory, but um, you know, uh, continuing continuation of, of that that dispute disagreement, then you need to actually move forward. You you need to actually kind of consider to involve the ethics committee or you know the MAC or you know whatever you know. Um, um, support system that you have at your hospital to actually try and resolve that conflict. And, um, you know, sometimes when we actually sit down, we find that different parties have different position, but when you look at it, you um, you might be able to actually achieve that common common agreement or common interests, you know, that, that I think, um, you know, trying to focus on the patient rather than what the family wants. And, you know, they, sometimes they have a lot of guilt that comes and baggage that comes with them as well. and. And uh, other parts, other times are just misunderstanding of, of uh, you know, yeah. um, what they know. Or they thank, thank you for that. So I, I think we, we can move to the next question. Uh, there's a question here, which is, uh, what is the legal aspect and the, uh, hold on a minute, let me see. Oh no, we've taken that question. So the next question here is, uh, here you are. What's the legal aspect and ethical issues if, uh, non-infectious disease physicians uh, treat COVID-19 patients. 
uh, is a bit different from the main topic of the day, which is about DNAR and EOL. Whether would you want to make? Yeah, we could answer. Uh, so, Doctor Liu, do you treat COVID nineteen patients? You are a cardiologist. Uh, I don't treat the COVID nineteen patients alone. I treat them usually when they have other problems with a heart problem. You know, I'm a cardiologist, so uh, but I, I understand this situation may arise in some hospital. Uh, you know, when there are only one or two clinicians, whether it is a public hospital or a private hospital even. Uh, I wonder whether you have any experience handling or getting consults for this issue. Um, that This is definitely something that has been asking from the beginning. So different kind of questions would come out like, um, um, you know, I'm not an ID or I'm not uh, public hospitals or I'm 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 all or you know kind of there are many conflicts that we have sometimes they are valid you know like you're pregnant you're old and sometimes is is um you know because that you feel that you're not comfortable with COVID-19 okay so I think at the beginning phase of the pandemic I think when it comes to SARS-CoV-2 and and COVID-19 is a very new virus and we do not know what's going on and that's where I think the ID comes in um you know to figure out things you know what are we looking at you know they are the best person that you they to, to actually manage COVID-19. And, and now it's been a year and I think there is enough of information that they have been sharing, you know, they have been trying to say that, um, you know, we could try and manage on our own as much as we could, you know, the complicated cases would definitely go to them. So it's good to actually kind of, um, you know, look at your patients as, as a whole. And I think what we are fearing about and what we are looking at at this point of time is that there are many patients which has other comorbids as well, which needs attention. And somehow they tend to be COVID-19 positive at the same time. And, and we are, you know, most of the time, the, the way that they are deteriorating or the way that they're presenting is not due to COVID-19, but due to, to other comorbids that they are having. And so when we kind of put them to, and uh, referring them to the COVID-19 hospitals or wards and, and those care would definitely get compromised, one thing. And second, sometimes when you are doing that ref refer, it, is it because, I, I think the misconception that we have that sometimes when we send patients to Sunai Bulo and we think that the ID is there I, and we need to remember the reason that we are sending is because of isolation. Yeah. You know, that, that isolation and the containment of that pandemic is not only just that disease, you know, that, that the experts are there. So I think that that plays into the whole holistic view of, you know, how, how you're going to manage the patient in front of you. Um, yeah. You know, I, I think you should always consult if you have a question. Yeah, I think so. I think uh, to put it simply, I think uh, uh, if uh, if we have patients who are, you know, COVID nineteen, I I I think it depends on how bad they are. You know, some yeah. of the patients, of course, as we know, having a very complex pneumonia, a complicated pneumonia, stage four, stage five, they certainly need special care. That's when they need to be referred to, not about just ID, but also the intensivists. You know, where they have that support and the expertise. Uh, but I suppose some patients when they are not very severe, you know, some of them, uh, you know, they may be managed in hospitals in a setting where, uh, you know, uh, you don't necessarily need a hands-on infectious disease, uh, you know, as, as, as consultant, yeah? but you need their input. And of course, they set the standards. And of course, uh, you know, we consult where we are in doubt. And I believe uh, there are many such patients. As you say, they need the isolation. They are treated in what we call pusat kesihatan, uh, pusat rawatan, uh, low risk. Yeah? Not necessary in ICU. Not all the COVID-19 patients are all that ill. Uh, shall we move on to the next question? Uh, now, we have here... Uh,
should hospitals require resuscitation? Uh, if if appropriate PPE is not available or staffing shortages or less trained, experienced code team member. So again, I think this is about, you know, uh, resuscitation when, you know, uh, the capacity, you know, for, you know, the staff, I suppose in this case, specifically about, you know, uh, PPE. Uh, not sure whether this is a, an issue still, but I think, uh, there were reports in the early part of the pandemic in not Malaysia, maybe some other countries that we hear people may not have PPE. And would it be ethical for the healthcare workers to put themselves at risk, ah, you know, to resuscitate patients? <laughs> what do you say, Dr. Tan? <laughs> the, the first thing is your role. I think this is probably the, the last question that we have time, I think, um, you know. Um, so your, your duty to care is there because in a society, that's your responsibility, you know. Uh, so like, like how we expect our leaders to do what they need to do, our teachers what they need to do. So as a doctor, the, the duty for you to actually care for the patient. So when you need to actually fulfill that duty, you know that you need PPE, okay? You need that space, you need um, some breaks, you need the food, you need, you know, then, then you should be demanding, you know. That, that's where I'm, I'm going to stand why for you to actually demand those PPE from your managers, from your leaders and saying, you know, we need this, we need this, we need this. So, so it's your job to actually provide that care. And at the same time, you, you need to tell, you know, your, your, your administrative that this is what I need to make sure that I would be able to fulfill my duty. So that sometimes that role, right, the, the responsibility is not just the clinicians, but also the reciprocal obligations of healthcare leaders to make sure that you could do your work best. So, uh, but you could not say that, you know, I don't have PPE and I'm, I'm, I'm not going to do anything about it. And I'm, I, I just decided, you know, not to see the patient and then that would be wrong. Okay. I, I think so. I agree. I, I think, uh, of course, in the beginning of the pandemic, you know, uh, you know, it's such a new disease. And uh, in China, you remember the days in Wuhan, they were overwhelmed. And I, I think we were fortunate we were not the first place to get it. And I think the rest of the, the world, including us, had the chance to prepare. So I think the preparation is the key. I agree with you. And I think this is where we had to, I, I would say, you know, uh, we had to prepare more than what we think we, we are going to cope. Uh, so that we don't, you know, uh, you know, sort of find ourselves in that situation, you know, that we don't have PPE. I haven't heard that situation yet, but I think whenever we heard at the early time when we had the pandemic, we were able to quickly solve it. We were quickly, you know, get the supplies out to people. And I think, uh, you know, uh, I'm not sure whether you had any any issues uh, of for PPE shortage, uh, you know, uh, nowadays. I think for, for my department itself, you know, we have uh, enough and I managed to actually secure a few donations as well from, you know, the American companies. And, and I think that there is no issue to actually have that plan ahead yeah. to be, um, you know, to plan. I, I know Dr. Liu have been managing quite well and, you know, you uh, I think we all try to plan ahead as much as you said. Yeah, shall we move to the next one then? Now, this okay. is a question. I, I think this question came about before your talk. So, uh, but I think it's good to recap. What type of patient should we, should we decide or should we consider or do not resuscitation? <laughs> it's been covered. Um, it's yeah. been covered, yeah. A quick recap. Well, as we say, uh, we think that the, the benefit of resuscitation, you know, uh, outweighs the need and, you know, the, you know, the, you know then I think uh, you, you consider it. You start to think about it, then you should consider it. 
you know, there's a little voice in us that tells us, oh, I think I've done my best. And I think this patient is not likely to make it. We, we shouldn't see dying patient as our failure, as I always say. But to recognize that is, uh, is important. And, you know, to recognize that uh, uh, addressing good end-of-life care, I, I say, is step-up care. We need to rebrand it. We shouldn't say it's step down. I, I've been telling colleagues and I say we should brave enough to tell people, cure sometimes, care always. And time to, to tell people we've done our best. And I think, you know, people expect that for doctors to, to be honest and to be caring, you know, to be caring till the end. That's how I look at it. And doctors need to take breaks as well, Dr. Lee. <laughs> okay, yeah. shall we move on to the next question? Yeah. Um, look at the question. You can see the questions there. Uh, so we have, should hospital require... No, we, we've done that one. What, why different vaccines for different people? Efficacy is not the same for all. Uh, we all know a tough one to choose. Some countries allow choice. Uh, this is not nothing to do with the topic of the day, but would you like to would like to comment on it, or shall we move on? <laughs> um, about the, we, we need a different we need a different webinar for this one. This is about yeah. vaccine. <laughs> I would say the last thing we should be doing just now when we are talking about is dramatizing. Yeah, I think I think we leave that now. If we have time, we may want to make comments. Let's move yeah. on to this one. Um, for humanity, can we allow? Closed spouse and children uh, do the last respect visit upon request. And what are the precautions will be recommended? So this I think, part, yeah, we are going to be drafting as well. Yeah. So do you want to make some comments on that? Um, I think there is one certain group that we should be considering are those which are dying. Um, but again, you know, when you have a population community which is in the red zone and anybody could be a COVID positive and that there is another concern in terms of infection control, allowing them to actually come in. Um, you know, so how, how do we balance that? So I, I think it is, it just needs a bit more planning, um, you know, how you want to screen and, you know, allow and signing a consent for risk, um, you know, trans, uh, trans, you know, transmission. Um, so it, it, I would say that it's something that could, that can be done, like, you know, um, overseas has been opening for you know those that are dying, um, yeah. But but yeah, I think it needs to go back to hospital administration and <laughs> and to look at the feasibility of um, you know the whole thing in terms of infection control. Yeah. Okay. Great. Thanks a lot. So it's four forty nine. We already passed the time. And like uh, you know, I think we have to wrap up here now. Uh, so I think uh, once again, I'd like to uh, thank uh, Dr. Tan Huisiu, and of course uh, we had to thank our ICR. And all the other parties who is involved in uh, setting this, uh, you know, setting up this webinar, I think it's a very important topic. And I would love to, you know, love to hear from you more. You know, I'm sure we'll find opportunities where we can share this with different different patient groups. Eh? And as you as you mentioned, I think uh, when we deal with cancer patients, in some way, this topic is sensitized. But when we deal with non-cancers, especially you know, uh, chronic illnesses or for times like this, acute disease, even in some people who may be previously healthy, uh, the issues of dying and the need to address uh, do not actively resuscitate or in that, in that manner, you know, end of life care as a bigger context, as you say, you know, is a very important, is a very important aspect of being a good clinician. 
I wouldn't spend too much time. I think that maybe uh, Dr. Tan, any parting words, any last message you'd like to share with us? Um, keep the conversations um, up and going and, you know, um, I think that's important to acknowledge the struggles that we have. Yeah. Um, regardless, regardless of the answers that we yeah. might agree or not, you know, with each other. Yep. Okay, I think with that, thank you very much. I think, uh, you know, everybody have a good day and uh, be safe, as we say. Okay, thank you very much again. So we'll wrap up this session. Okay.